This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Flumph. We've spent the last several weeks talking about monsters. We've talked about weird monsters like the GIF. We've talked about silly monsters like the land shark and the owlbear. We've talked about baffling monsters like the Atyug. And we've talked about nice, normal, mundane monsters like rats and wolves. But today, we're talking about a deadly, serious monster. It is a creature that has the distinction of being the only lawful good monster in the advanced Dungeons and Dragons fiend folio. A creature that to this day retains a stalwart devotion to the highest good while staring into the depths of pure evil. It is a creature renowned for its wisdom and knowledge. It is a creature that is peaceful by nature and uses any means to avoid a confrontation before resorting to violence. And it is often maligned as ridiculous and useless despite its dis... <laughs> oh, jeez. No, 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 no. We can't do it. We cannot do this with a straight face. We're talking about the flump, the tentacled floating dinner plate that flatulates its way around the world and becomes useless if you flip it on its back. It's like a farting turtle with eyes and tentacles, only somehow less impressive. And by talking about this today, well, tomorrow, we're engaging in a very enduring Dungeons & Dragons tradition. But we'll get back to that. First, let's talk about the flump. See, the most recent incarnation of Dungeons & Dragons, the 5th edition, is notable in that it is the first edition to include the flump in its core bestiary, the Monster Manual. While flumps have existed in every edition of Dungeons & Dragons, they have never been given core status. And the 5th edition Monster Manual makes a valiant attempt to give the flump a serious place in the world. Which was no easy task. We couldn't even get through one paragraph treating them seriously. A flump is a dinner plate sized floating jellyfish creature that hovers in the air by expelling by expelling air from its underside. <laughs> the, the sound of its little gas jets give it its name, apparently. <clears throat> even even though <laughs> Oh man. Even though the creature is intelligent and capable of communication telepathically with anyone and could say something like, no, we're actually called Tralfamadorians. Still, it's named a flump. The creature has a pair of prehensile eye stalks sticking from its top and tendrils dangling down from its bottom. Because it can move only by way of its little flump jets, if you manage to flip it over, it becomes immobile and helpless. To defend themselves, flumps rely primarily on spraying a stinky liquid like a skunk. Oh, and the creature changes color based on its mood. The flump is also psychic, and in 5th edition, its psychic nature describes its useful role in the game world. See, flumps feed on psychic energy. They're like little mental parasites, and they are attracted to other psychic creatures. 
They tend to live on the outskirts of Mindflayer, Githyanki, and Aboleth communities, all of whom are iconic D&D psychics, and all of whom are terribly evil. And so, as the flumps carefully drain thoughts and emotions from these creatures, just enough to avoid being noticed, mind you, as they drain psychic energy, their peaceful little pure minds are bombarded with evil thoughts and dark, twisted desires. And they happily share the secrets they learn with adventurers, so that the adventurers can slay all of the evil psychic creatures. The ones the flumps have to feed off of to survive. Makes perfect sense. Forgive us for editorializing. We try not to, but this thing is just silly. But that's not the fault of the designers of D&D's 5th edition. After all, they are doing the best they can with source material that has been around for 35 years. Or maybe it is their fault. Because for 30 of those years, everyone knew the flump was ridiculous. The Flump first appeared in 1981 in the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons Fiend Folio, and to understand where the Flump came from, you have to understand where the Fiend Folio came from. And that is explained in the introduction to that very book by the editor Don Turnbull. In the late 1970s, Dungeons & Dragons finally made the leap from the United States to the United Kingdom. And that was thanks in no small part to avid gamer, journalist, and pinball enthusiast Don Turnbull. As the role-playing hobby was starting to catch on in jolly old England, Turnbull became a regular contributor to a British gaming newsletter called The Owl and Weasel. The Owl and Weasel, published by Steve Jackson, but not the American Steve Jackson of Munchkin and Gerps fame, and Ian Livingston eventually gave way to full-on gaming magazine White Dwarf and Turnbull became a regular contributor to that as well. Specifically, he came up with a grading system for monsters in various role-playing games and also began publishing new monsters in a regular feature known as the Fiend Factory. So Turnbull was hired by Games Workshop, the UK games publisher who owned White Dwarf. After that, he attracted the attention of Gary Gygax. Gygax was interested in getting Dungeons & Dragons published in the United Kingdom, and hired Don Turnbull to manage their UK operation. We've covered all of that before. What's interesting, though, is that Turnbull was also hired to compile a new tome of monsters. That's the book that became the Fiend Folio. But unlike the original Monster Manual, whose creations had mostly been the handiwork of Gary Gygax, Turnbull wanted to do something different and he was still friendly with the folks at White Dwarf, even though the magazine had since stopped publishing D&D content. See, now that TSR was publishing D&D in the UK, Games Workshop viewed them as a competitor. But even so, White Dwarf had recently invited fans to create their own monsters for the still-ongoing Fiend Factory feature. And the editor supplied Turnbull with many, many monster ideas. Turnbull used those featured fiends to fill the Fiend folio, and among those that made the cut, the flump. What's more interesting are the fiends that didn't make the cut, the monsters that Turnbull felt just weren't up to the same quality as a lawful good floating farting dinner plate whose only offensive maneuvers were spraying stinky syrup and lightly falling on someone's head. 
These included a magical robot called the Wrecker that was immune to all spells and could break through walls to kill you. They also included a magically animated floating disc spell with a mind of its own. Basically, it's the dinner plate without the eye stalks and skunk spray. And for those who like sci-fi movie ripoffs, a giant carrot monster and a massive burrowing serpent known as the Spice Worm. There was also a bear with a horn. So why are we talking about the flump? Why is it in the core monster manual? Why wasn't it forgotten like so many other silly beasts from that book? Beasts like the Sifal, who was just a swarm of bugs that could form themselves into animal shapes like bees in old Disney and Looney Tunes cartoons. Well, it probably would have been forgotten, if not for a joke in a terribly maligned D&D product published in 1988, a product that many people thought was not merely a joke, but an insult. Way, way, way back when D&D was barely a thing, E. Gary Gygax, the game's co-creator, designed a massive dungeon called Castle Greyhawk. In fact, the sprawling labyrinth of abandoned tunnels beneath the titular castle was the first testing ground for Dungeons and Dragons ever. And although Gygax expanded greatly on the world around the castle, the world of Greyhawk, he never published the original dungeon that started it all. Much to his fans' dismay, fans were clamoring for it. And then, in 1983, Gygax left his company, TSR, in the hands of his two fellow managers, Kevin and Brian Bloom, so that he could go to California and negotiate licensing deals for the D&D brand, including a movie that was to star Orson Welles. But in 1985, the movie deal fell through, and he returned to Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, to find that TSR was going bankrupt. The Blooms had plunged the company into debt through excessive spending and mismanagement, and TSR was dying. Through a few clever business maneuvers, Gygax was able to regain control of the company and have Kevin Bloom removed as president. He brought in a financial manager, Lorraine Williams, to help stabilize the company. And he quickly penned a new D&D supplement and a new novel that were both runaway successes. And soon, the company was on firm financial footing again. But then, the two Bloom brothers sold their shares in the company to Lorraine Williams, which, when combined with her own shares, gave her controlling interest in the company. She used her controlling interest to appoint herself president and CEO. And Gary Gygax was ousted from TSR. And after that, Gygax had no direct involvement with the design and development of Dungeons & Dragons ever again. It was very ugly and contentious. Williams was a financial manager first and a gamer second. Well, not at all. Actually, while she saw great potential in the company, by all accounts, she seemed to harbor some deep resentment for gamers themselves. And while TSR would enjoy a great deal of growth and success under Williams, by 1996, the company would be falling apart at the seams once again. But that's a different story. Right now, what we're concerned about is an adventure module that was published two years after the ugliness with Gygax, a supplement called Castle Greyhawk. Fans were extremely excited, and then 
bitterly disappointed. The supplement was a collection of ludicrous, pun-filled joke dungeons filled with pop culture references and ridiculous anachronisms. And many fans were convinced that TSR had purposely published it to rub salt in Gygax's wounds after he'd been forced out of the company he'd created. Now, why do we bring this up? We bring it up because, after seven years of languishing forgotten in the pages of the Fiend Folio, the flump had returned. In a chapter called Queen of the Honeybee Hive, a dungeon section marked out on a hexagonal grid, there was a magical door to the realm of silly and unused monsters. It was just beyond a location called the room that lets the party make it to the next set of rooms. And it was located near a room that contained a fake tropical island filled with plastic trees, a crashed jumbo jet, and a humanoid raisin named Marvin Grape. We are not making any of this up. And thereafter, the Forgotten Flump gained its true place in D&D history. It became the monster that got trotted out as an example of ridiculous, silly joke monsters. It appears on every list of silly monsters, and at least once per edition. Whenever TSR or Wizards of the Coast or Dragon Magazine or Dungeon Magazine or even Paizo needed to do an April Fool's joke, it was there. The Flump. The April Fool's Monster. And that is why we've brought it up today. Because today is the eve of April Fool's Day. And the reason why we spent so much time talking about the origin of the flump is because that's a heck of a lot easier than tracking down the origin of April Fool's Day. If you're somehow unaware of why you should never trust anything published on the internet on April the 1st, and please note, this was published on March 31st and is therefore completely trustworthy. April Fool's Day is a Western pseudo-holiday that occurs on the 1st of April. It is celebrated primarily by playing pranks and practical jokes. Nowadays, that means pop culture and even news sites get to publish blatantly untrue things and then have to spend the next week apologizing for confusing people because <laughs> really it was just a joke. The tradition supposedly dates back to April the 1st of the year 1582 CE. On that date, France officially switched from the old Julian calendar of ancient Rome to the new Gregorian calendar introduced by Pope Gregory XIII. The new calendar corrected several inaccuracies in the old calendar, but more importantly, at least for this story, it also changed the date on which the year started. See, the Romans had celebrated the start of the new year on March 25th, which coincided with the start of spring. However, New Year's celebrations were typically postponed until April 1st to avoid conflict with the Christian Holy Week that preceded Easter and ended the Lenten feast. The new calendar set the start of the year to January 1st. Now, the popular theory about April Fool's Day 
is that people who didn't get the news about the date change and who consequently celebrated the start of the year on April 1st became laughingstocks. In France, these people were supposedly called April fish and had drawings of fish called Poisson d'Avril, or Fish of April in French, stuck to their backs. This old term for gullibility comes from the idea that fish caught soon after the spawning season, in April, for instance, are young and easy to catch. To this day, in France, April Fool's pranks are sometimes accompanied with this shout of Poisson d'Avril, and many pranks, including prank phone calls, include a fishy theme. Similar theories have been presented that April Fool's Day started as a tradition to ridicule non-Christian pagans who refused to recognize the start of the new year in January and continued celebrating it with the coming of spring. But there are also theories that April Fool's Day dates back a little farther. See, the Romans had this tradition called the Hilaria. And you might recognize that word as the root of the word hilarity or hilarious. And good on you, because it is. It was a Latin word derived from an older Greek word that meant merriment or cheerfulness. Originally, a hilaria was simply any day that was set aside for revelry or for any light-hearted celebration. Some were private, like weddings or the celebration of the birth of a child. But some were public holidays. Now, it's important to note that not all holidays were hilaria. The Romans had many days that were important for religious or secular reasons. In point of fact, every day on the Roman calendar, particularly under the Roman Republic, had a special character. And we mean that both in the sense that a day had a certain flavor to it, and in the sense that a letter was literally assigned to each day. The characterization of Roman days is actually a very complicated affair. Days could be reserved for the gods, for government business, for work, or for celebration. And those days could be further characterized based on what sort of work or worship or whatever could be performed. Only on certain days could court cases be heard. Government assemblies could only be conducted on certain days. And even though the Romans observed an eight-day week, every ninth day, the Nanina Day, was reserved as a day for public markets to be held. That meant market day moved around every week. But all that aside, what's important is this. Not all celebrations were hilaria. Hilaria were particularly joyous public or private celebrations, and not every celebration was filled with joyful revelry. As of 354 CE, the Roman calendar included two public holidays specifically denoted as hilaria. One in November was Navigium Isidus, that name translates to the Vessel of Isis. The feast was a celebration of the harvest and a time for merrymaking. It had a carnival-like atmosphere. In fact, the word carnival comes from the feast's opening procession, which included a carus navilis, or a naval cart. This was just a cart with a model ship, a Vessel of Isis, on top. And if that sounds familiar, that's because it's the origin of the modern parade float. The other Hilaria fell at the end of March. It was known as Hilaria Matris Dium, the celebration of the mother of the gods. And it honored Cybele, the Roman, well, the Roman mother of the gods, obviously. Games, amusements, and masquerades of all types took place on that day. And it was legal 
for any citizen to, in disguise, imitate whoever they'd like, even magistrates and government officials. Yes, the holiday was specifically for doing your best unflattering impression of your least favorite government official. The point is, April Fool's Day has been around a long time, and no one is quite sure where it started. But regardless, a lot of traditions and superstitions have grown around it, like the Poisson d'Avre, or the April Gauk. That's what they call April Fool's pranks in Scotland. See, a Gauk is a cuckoo bird, which has long been seen as a symbol of gullibility in Scotland, as well as other places. Which brings us to an interesting example of how the pranks have changed over the years and how those pranks have informed other aspects of life. See, nowadays, April Fool's pranks tend to be elaborate tales and fake news stories set up by the media or on social media. From a Canadian minister reporting that the great clock in Ottawa's Peace Tower was being replaced with a digital clock in 1996, to the BBC reporting on Switzerland's annual spaghetti harvest coming in a little early due to an early growing season in 1957. But back in the days when the calendar first changed over, pointless errands were the joke of the day. And they became especially popular in the 1800s. And if you've seen Pixar's animated emotional roller coaster Up, you've seen an example of such a prank. In that movie, an elderly curmudgeon named Carl Fredrickson tries to rid himself of a young boy scout intent on earning a merit badge for assisting the elderly by sending him on a snipe hunt. Carl tells the young scout, Russell, that a fictional bird called a snipe lives under his porch and asks him to catch it. Of course, hilarity and other emotions ensue when Carl then flies his house to South America and Russell encounters a previously unknown species of giant bird. But believe it or not, the snipe hunt has been a sort of camping initiation since the 1840s. It begins when a member of the camping group recognizes the signs of a snipe in the area. Tracks, smell, whatever. The victim of the prank, often someone new to the wilderness, outdoor camping, or the Boy Scouts, is given a bag or pillowcase and told to wait in the clearing to catch the rare snipe. The rest of the troop ostensibly disappears in the woods to chase the snipe toward the victim. In reality, they return to their camp and leave the victim alone to figure out he's been duped. The victim is left all by himself in a clearing, holding the bag. And in fact, that's where we get that term, holding the bag. It should be noted that this prank has nothing to do with actual snipes. Yes, there are such things. They are long-billed wetland birds found in marshes and bogs all over the world. Now, if you live in France, Italy, or Switzerland, you may have heard of a similar prank involving a mysterious lopsided deer called the dahu. According to legend, this strange species of mountain-dwelling hoofed mammal has shorter legs on one side of its body than on the other, so that it can walk along on otherwise sheer mountain faces. There are three variants. The Lavagyrus dahu has shorter legs on the left, and so it can only walk counterclockwise around mountains. 
The dextrogyrdahu has shorter legs on the right, and it can only walk clockwise around the mountains. The third variant, known as the dead dahu, can't walk at all. Dahu catching is similar to snipe hunting. A naive hunter is sent out with ridiculous instructions to search for the non-existent beast and then make a sudden noise behind it. When the creature turns around, its short legs will end up down the slope of its long legs and it will tumble down the mountain. Pepper can also be used to make it sneeze and lose its balance. These sorts of wild goose chases were once common April Fool's pranks, but they've become more common as rites of initiation in various groups. Rookie pilots may be sent to find a bucket of prop wash or five yards of flight line. Nurses have been sent to find left-handed trauma scissors. Petroleum engineers might be asked to hunt down a steam bucket. We'll leave you to figure out and or look up the details of those jokes. But we would be remiss if we didn't point out that the term wild goose chase has an interesting origin too. Most people think it was first coined by William Shakespeare in Romeo and Juliet. And sure enough, Shakespeare does refer to a futile effort as a wild goose chase. And such a chase would be futile. Wild geese can fly and fly far and fast. There's no hope in chasing one once it starts to get away. But there was an earlier meaning for the term. A wild goose chase was a specific type of horse race in which each rider had to follow a lead rider at a set distance along an erratic course, mimicking a flight of geese following their leader. But we digress. Whatever you think of the flump, <laughs> and whatever the origin of April Fool's Day, be careful what you believe on the internet tomorrow. And if April 1st has already passed by the time you listen to this, we hope no one made you an April Gauk or a Poisson du Havre. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. Thank you.